HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This is Coral, host of Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I've been a part of the HRN community for two years, and even after all that time, I'm constantly inspired by the incredible voices of our network. Each week, I record my show in the HRN studio, made from two recycled shipping containers, because I'm excited to bring you, our listeners, the most important stories existing at the intersection of food and culture. All of us here at HRN make food radio because we love it. This year, HRN is celebrating its 10th anniversary, but we need your support to keep food radio going strong for the next decade. Join the HRN community today by becoming a member. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate right now. You can even show some love for my show by selecting Meant to be Eaten in the designation drop-down menu. Thanks for listening to HRN. This episode is brought to you by Visit Ithaca. Ithaca, New York boasts an authentic craft beverage experience, tasty farm-to-table culinary adventures, and scenic outdoor recreation among 150 waterfalls. Plan your trip today with help from visitithaca.com. Radio Network. I'm your host, Coralie. The answers, let alone questions asked on the show, have never been so definitively black nor white, but exist along the spectrum of the in-between. Leslie Bowe is the author of Partly Colored, a book that looks at American literature, film, autobiography, ethnography, and pop culture of the Jim Crow era to investigate the ways the in-between people and communities were perceived in the South. Welcome to the show, Leslie. Hey, thanks for having me, Coral. So let's start with some background about you, how you got to where you are now, figuratively and literally. So I am an English professor, and I am third generation, fourth generation Chinese American from the San Francisco Bay Area. And I first got interested in Asian American studies um, really early on um, in terms of reading Asian American literature, which was few and far between. But as I studied the literature itself, I became interested in the ways in which Asians in the United States were themselves racialized. And I began talking to my parents a little bit about their own past and upbringing, which was very different from my own growing up in the Bay Area in California. So both of my parents uh, are from Arkansas, and they were raised as behind a mom-and-pop grocery stores in uh, more, you know, in town areas in the South. 
And I wondered about their experiences in terms of race, in terms of being Asian American in the South, which at the time they were growing up was segregated by Jim Crow laws. It turns out that both of them went to the quote-unquote white schools in the towns that they lived in in Arkansas. And so I was asking them a little bit about what it was like to grow up as Chinese without any other Chinese families in their towns. And so some of the things that they were saying were very um, surprising insofar as they were very mild-mannered. They were very bland. In other words, they would say things like, oh, yeah, you know, we got along fine. We got along with both African-Americans and white Americans. They didn't say much more about that experience. And as some of us know from uh, American history, you know, race relations in the American South, the Deep South, are very um, violent. You know, they were very restrictive. Um, and so to hear my parents say in very mild manner terms, yes, oh, it, you know, it was it was fine. Um, I thought I would probe a little bit more and read a little bit more about that history, if I could find it, and then uh, ask them a few more questions. Yeah, actually, um, I had that same experience where um, growing up, um, I was a teenager and very angsty and asked my mom um, how she dealt with kind of this weird complication with her identity and being Asian in America and she was just kind of like what what problems we were fine uh -huh. we, we didn't really mm -hmm. we just dealt with that kind of stuff and so what do you think it is about our generation that makes us so ready to talk about these things when our parents um, or the generations before that are not they don't see any issue with it you know and I really think it has to do with social movements of the 60s and the 70s so I was one of the first generations to have grown up after there was a concept like Asian American identity. Mm -hmm. So when my parents were growing up, they did not have recourse to think of themselves in a collective way um, as Asian Americans. They thought of themselves as Chinese Americans, you know, first and foremost. There was no question of that. But they didn't have a sense of like how that was politicized, right? So for them, it was just Here's my aspect of Chinese culture. Here's the, you know, what I retained of it. Here's what I did not. They grew up, you know, their parents barely spoke English, but English was enforced in the household, so they lost, you know, the language. They themselves were, you know, 2.5, you know, kind of generation. And when I think of um, asking them, like, well, you know, what were those experiences like in terms of prejudice? in terms of discrimination. They didn't have what I would say is a politicized or a systemic way about talking about that. They would say that people were either nice or they were not nice, mm -hmm. you know, totally. as opposed to, you know, these people had were enforcing white supremacy, right, upon me, or they were allowing me to be honorary white. They didn't see it in terms that were systemic. They saw it in terms of this person was either kind or not kind, you know, very personalized. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so though they didn't have the words to maybe talk about it yet, um, you call this, um, quote unquote, the third race or being in between. And so how can you talk a bit about how you came to understand that you were this in between race and yeah, yeah some of these complications that you experienced growing up? 
Yeah, so one of the things that I thought was interesting to begin with uh, this book, Partly Colored, that I wrote was really um, based on kind of a hook, which is in the separated South, which drinking fountain did Asians drink from? Where, where did they ride on the bus? Front, back, middle? You know, very, did they use the front door? Did they use the back door? Did they go to the white schools? Did they go to black schools? You know, so these are the questions that I was kind of pushing to ask them about their experiences. And this idea of being in the middle or interstitial was certainly part of the story that they told. But I'll back up a little bit and say, when I was in college, I found a book called um, The Mississippi Chinese, Between Black and White, written by sociologist James Lowen um, in 1972. And one of the things that he did in the 70s, and again, you know, as part of this, this moment that was happening in American culture, to be aware of race relations and be aware of the legacies of segregation as they were still continuing. So we went into the Deep South, found this community of Chinese in Mississippi, and my parents lived in Arkansas, so it was across the river. But a, a community of Chinese Americans in the Mississippi Delta and was curious about the th how they acculturated to life. It wasn't really a question about segregation or not, legal segregation. It was, you know, how do they acculturate to this racially bifurcated uh, situation? And one of the things that he found was that generation in this community did some very interesting things about um, how they made themselves into like a third or in-between race. So there was a kind of mimicry of American culture and ways, i.e. things like birthday parties or going to Christian churches, right? So there was a way in which they were accommodating to the environment that they surround themselves in, which was very American. But there was also kind of a tacit acceptance of segregation as it existed. In other words, there was a strong tolerance of the Chinese as long as they themselves respected both sides of the color line. In other words, that they were not admitted into the social circles of the white people who lived around them. By the same token, they could not fraternize with African Americans out of the fear that they would be marked as, quote, partly colored. And so what we saw in his work was a kind of accommodation of that in-between status. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it sounds like your parents were able to use their hyphenated identity kind of to their benefit um, in a way that I think a lot of people around my age, or maybe it sounds like you are experiencing this as well, where the hyphenated identity is kind of difficult to wrap our minds around. We feel neither Asian nor American nor really Asian American. And so mm -hmm. can you also talk a bit about why, um, how they were able to use it to their benefit and why we our perspective has kind of turned on that. Yeah, and so one of the, the quote-unquote benefits is that we're talking about a population that did not gain white privilege in the sense that we think of it now. However, there were accommodations for being quote-unquote like white. In other words, in Arkansas, they went to the white schools. Whereas in Mississippi, the Chinese set up their own segregated schools of among Chinese Americans, right? So even a difference across state lines. So one could say, oh, then was it honorary whiteness that got you into the white schools? Well, yes and no, because 
you know, for example, I would ask my mother just really basic questions about things like dating, right? So interracial dating was something that she said, no one ever said, no, you cannot date a member who is not of your race, either white or black. No one explicitly said that to her. She internalized it to say, no, of course, I will look for my partners, you know, among this Chinese American community, even if I have to drive like two or three hours as they did, right, Mm -hmm. to build a community and come together. And I think... One of the things that's interesting to me to think about, about that experience, and why I think this book has had a little bit of a trigger, you know, for some people, is to think of that in-betweenness, not simply as this is this one community in this historical time period, right? This is a regional community, this is a historical time period, and of course, it is that. But one of the things that I think is uh, of interest to Asian Americans is to think more broadly and conceptually about comparative racialization and how blackness, whiteness, and, 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 and uh, you know, other forms of indigeneity and racialization impact how you're perceived as a community. So the in-betweenness, right, when you think of like, oh, do Asians have white privilege? Well, not really. But this is a way to think about the idea of how those racial positions as a form of determining social status, right, mm-hmm. are abstracted beyond the idea of like you're being biologically, biologically a, a member of a certain race. So I think that that's why it's, it's had a little bit, um, you know, of an interest more broadly, because if we think of Asian Americans as somehow an interstitial or intermediate racialized group, what we're saying is not, you know, that race is a biological entity, but that race is a form of status. How do we understand Asian status, social status in the United States if we take it to the lens of race? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it would actually be remiss to note that um, Asians are not the only in-between community. There is the Latinx community. There's also um, yeah. indigenous community that we're talking about here. And so... Um, to telescope outwards, and this may be a completely ignorant question, but if it's so difficult for these marginalized communities to exist in these in the South, then why why would they choose to live there, and why do they continue to move there? Yeah, so one of the chapters that I wrote about um, turned out to be about the Lumbee Indians in North Carolina. And this is a very storied community. This is a community that had existed, you know, uh, before, you know, uh, Western colonization. But what happened to that particular local community is when legal Jim Crow, segregation era laws began to impact that community, you know, basically it was a, a white-black binary, right? So this uh, American Indian community had to be defined as, well, are you water colored? And they would say, no, we're Indian, you know, we're American Indian, mm-hmm. which is not to say that they had not intermixed with both of those populations. They absolutely had. And what was interesting to me is to think about, well, here's a community that had existed in the same space for generations and generations. All of a sudden, they were asked in front of state and federal governments to define themselves according to the, these new racially uh, bifurcated laws. And the way that they came back to, with that was to say, no, we are, we are Indian, this is the way that we're Indian, and we will sue you in federal court for that um, 
classification, Mm -hmm. which by and large was fairly successful. And so, and it had to do mainly with uh, schooling. And what was became interesting after um, desegregation efforts in the South, so they had their own school, their own in their own college, that was um, an American Indian college. And in fact, one of the things that threatened it was desegregation, which is to say, no, anyone can go to that college. And they were like, no, you know, this is an American Indian college. And so it, it's funny because they were on the other end of that you know, maybe more progressive efforts at desegregation in terms of race because they stood to lose, right? Uh, their very notion of an Indian school, right, mm-hmm. at, at Pemberton. Yeah, I was um, speaking with someone the other day about the kind of proliferation of American Chinese restaurants. There was um, a few um, history of American Chinese restaurant books that came out in the past year talking about mm-hmm. how they're really the, you know, truly American cuisine and that they're, you know, a lot more American than we think. And so um, another very simplistic way of looking at it is like, why is there really enough opportunity to continue opening restaurants here in America? And why are Chinese people still immigrating to America to open these restaurants? And I, yeah, yeah what do you mm-hmm. think? Um, you know, it, it's funny because I just did a driving tour of Chinese restaurants in Mississippi and Arkansas in the South with my son who took some pictures um, and published them in um, Oxford American. So if anyone's interested in seeing pictures, they can go online to Oxford American. Um, But what's interesting about that question is I was interviewing a lot of folks of my parents' generation who owned mom and pop grocery stores. And that was the economic niche for Chinese people in the deep South in the previous generation. In the newer generation, it is Chinese restaurants. And this, that generation of Chinese very much differentiated themselves from newer immigrant Chinese who had newly come to the United States and were working these restaurants. And I think that, you know, it's probably a shock for them to be new immigrants in the United States and see what passes as Chinese food. I think, you know, I think they acculturated to that notion, you know, very quickly. Um, and I think it's really interesting that the, labor, racialized labor niche, there used to be grocery stores, but now it's much more restaurants. And I think that, that you know, um, this idea of an, having an appetite for something that is both different and familiar, mm-hmm. you know, is, is still very much part of, you know, our American culture. Mm-hmm. This is meant to be eaten on Heritage Radio Network. We'll be back after a short break. This episode is brought to you by Visit Ithaca. Located in New York's Finger Lakes region, Ithaca boasts an authentic craft beverage experience, tasty farm-to-table culinary adventures, and scenic outdoor recreation. As the saying goes, Ithaca is gorgeous. The city is home to 150 waterfalls and gorges sprinkled through its downtown and sloping hillsides. State parks and acres of natural lands offer outdoor recreation for every level of enthusiast. Come stroll among the cool ravines, scenic hiking trails, and natural vistas. Ithaca is home to Ivy League Cornell University and Ithaca College, resulting in an influx of new cultures, new tastes, and new energy every year. 
There's so much to explore, from art galleries and museums to unique attractions like the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Ithaca sits at the heart of a blossoming heritage and craft cider industry. Some of these delicious ciders can be bought in market, but many of the most unique varieties can only be experienced with a visit to Ithaca and this great cider region. Go to visitithaca.com to get inspired and plan your trip today. This is Meant to Be Eaten. I'm here with Leslie Bowe, and we were talking a bit about um, actually just Chinese-American restaurants and how they were a way for Chinese immigrants to find um, kind of a foothold here in America. And so this is an example of a way that these in-between communities found a way to thrive despite or maybe in spite of these color lines. But Leslie, what are some other examples of how these in-between communities were alienated and maybe some ways that um, they were able to cope or simply exist peacefully despite the color lines? Yeah, so uh, I think I wanted to talk a little bit about your question of accommodation in terms of education. Mm -hmm. And I thought I would tell this story about my dad who went to what was then um, Southwestern at Memphis, but is now Rhodes College. Now, this was before desegregation. So he was basically the only person of color other than one foreign Chinese student who went to this college. And so one of the stories that he used to tell me was that he had formed this club called the Intermediate Men's Club, something like that, um, which was like a fraternity, but it, you know, participated in all these like intramural sports and things like that. And so I didn't think that much about it as a story about why he had done it. He had, you know, pictures of what was basically a pseudo fraternity. And finally, I asked him, well, did you start this club because as a Chinese person, you were not allowed to rush, right? You were not allowed to, to rush into a white Greek system. And, and he kind of like, you know, downplayed that question. But I thought, you know, it was a very viable point. He didn't, it was either something that he didn't want to think about or he didn't admit into his conscious thinking that basically if you as a Chinese person in this school wanted to participate in the social life of this Greek system and you could not rush a fraternity, that there were no other options for you other, other than to start your own club, <laughs> which he did. Did, um, did a lot of people join and what was his kind of vetting process for allowing members in? Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting because he did have both the other Chinese person, you know, <laughs> in the fraternity, mm -hmm. and then a, a bunch of other white, you know, not outlier, you know, white men, you know, who just chose not to, you know, rush a fraternity, but they wanted to have, you know, part be a part of the social life of the school and be uh, participate in intercollegiate sports, you know, so... You know, that was the end result. So it wasn't, and I think I wanted, I wanted to tell the story because what was interesting to me about the story was not the factual part of it. You know, were these fraternities racially segregated? Did they count him as, quote unquote, partly colored and therefore he could not rush the fraternity system? No one's ever going to say yes or no to those answers, at least not to my dad's face. Mm -hmm. But what he had done was he created a kind of in-between, you know, space that would allow him to participate in an unjust system 
but have dignity as well. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, I don't know that he would ever articulate it that way. It's what I'm interpreting, you know, for mm-hmm. him. But I think of so many uh, ways, and that was just a really inter- uh, immediate, visceral way of like, what do you do if you're of, in the society of these people, but you're not really of them? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I thought that was a very uh, almost emotional kind of touching response. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we opened the episode talking a bit about how our parents were much more tough and willing to endure this kind of thing than we are. Maybe we're yeah. too heady. Um, but so how are are these ident- hyphenated identities formed from these kinds of experiences? And, and, and that's a really interesting question, Coral, because I think the legacy of the question, that anecdote that I just posed, still pertains on college campuses today for Asian students, Asian American students, and Asian foreign students. You know, it's like when I see uh, Chinese students who are here for the first time in the United States having to negotiate what it means to be Chinese in the Midwest. So I'm uh, at the University of Wisconsin at Madison, which is a wonderful institution. It's also one of the very, very white institutions Mm -hmm. left right in the United States because we're talking about the heartland of the Midwest. And we're talking about Chinese students who have not had, especially because of their class backgrounds, upper class backgrounds, had to think about the way in which they have been racialized, right? Mm -hmm. They have not had to think about that from their homes in China. They come to the United States and they, you know, they come to my classes in Asian American studies and some of them are like, oh, wow, racism against Asians? Interesting. But then they themselves are living in an environment where status is very blatant, right? Mm -hmm. In terms of who is included and who is excluded. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you use the word negotiation, which um, can we just impact that a bit? Who is negotiating and what is being negotiated? Yeah, I think it has to do with what happens when you realize that there are borders, right, placed around how people see you and perceive you, and whether you are included as a full member of that society or not. And I think that's something so viscerally that other racial groups in the United States experience in perhaps much more violent, you know, and continually violent ways. For Asian Americans, that also is the case. And I don't know if we I, I actually teach um, Hassan Minaj's uh, first um, Homecoming King uh, comedy in my classes. And what's so interesting about it is that he can make comedy out of very painful experiences mm-hmm. that show him, you know, throughout his life and growing up in California, oh, I thought I was just a member of this culture, a member of this society, and then suddenly 9-11 happened, right? And anti-Muslim violence comes to visit him and his cul-de-sac in Northern California. And so there's a way, you know, when you think about racial negotiation for Asian Americans, you know, part of the experience that I think is very nuanced for middle class Asian Americans is to go, you know, go along thinking, oh, I'm just one of this group until something happens where you realize, oh, no, I'm perceived as other or I'm perceived as different in ways that are shocking to you because you think of yourself as an intact whole person, right? Mm -hmm. Not as someone who embodies something that is 
uh, you know, aberrant to other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually went to um, school in the Midwest for my first two years of college, and oh. uh, what a lot of the first questions that I was asked when having to introduce myself was like, oh, you know, so you must really know Japanese cuisine and Korean food and um, do all these Chinese New Year traditions. And I was thinking, like, I'm from California. Like, I don't... Yeah. I, and it forced me to actually look at my heritage a bit more. And, um, yeah, so I actually very much relate with um, what you just shared. Yeah, and I think that, you know, in Asian American societies, the idea of being always alien is one of the common racial tropes or characterizations of Asians in the United States. So that was, it's also something that, you know, is is interesting because in in an early, you know, Asian American, you know, racial consciousness, the idea of differentiating yourself from um, um, recent immigrants or fresh off the boats Mm -hmm. is certainly something that is continually um, painful, you know, Mm -hmm. in terms of to, you know, well, I, but I'm different from you. Or I'm the same as you, you know, that's when we use the word negotiation, but certainly something that Asians in the United States are, no matter what, their their immigrant generation are also still negotiating. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you kind of showed this with what you were saying about Homecoming King, um, that we kind of idealistically now understand that multiculturalism refers to much more than just black and white communities. But what are some lasting consequences that we see still see and experience today in kind of parsing through the spectrum of the in-between? Yeah, I think one of the the powerful outcomes of thinking about the legacy of segregation, black-white segregation, legal segregation in the United States, is that it affected other groups, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, for to to say that, and, and people would say, but you're not you know, you're not black, you're not white, how could it have affected you? And I think for me, one of the, the most uh, emotional parts of, about researching this uh, work is to say, yeah, it did affect you in terms of the psychology of realizing the degree to which you are racialized and racialized in comparison to these other groups. And in fact, that is the way that social status parses out, right? That you're finding your space among these other established groups and that you have to become legible and understood within the categories that had uh, come before you. And I think that was the most striking thing about it. It's not, and there's no single answer to it. There's no single answer to say, well, were Asians treated like African-Americans? Oh, no. Or were they treated like white people in the Deep South? The answer is much more nuanced and much more nebulous, you know, at times than that, right? Mm -hmm. That there are these accommodations. And and I'll just end in this other really intriguing anecdote that I often tell to show how arbitrary those laws were in terms of how they interpolated uh, Asian-Americans. So, um, I was talking to uh, a Filipino doctor who had come from the Philippines um, to work as a doctor in the United States for the first time, finds out that he has been uh, assigned to a hospital in Baltimore, Maryland, which is, uh, you know, at the cusp of the Mason-Dixon line. So Mm -hmm. then in the 50s, it was the South. So he tells me he goes to get his driver's license at the DMV, and there are two categories, boxes to check that show your racial identity on your driver's license. And so it was colored and it was white. Hmm. So he tells a story, he looks down at his arm and he says, hmm, you know, 
brown, Tory Marks color. Goes up to the clerk at the DMV, and the clerk takes it, looks at it, and says, no, you know, you're white. <laughs> okay. So he changes that on his form, gets his driver's license. He drives to the hospital where he has been posted. Turns out that the uh, parking lots are segregated. Attendant there, weighs him to the white lot. Okay, parks in the white lot, goes up to the ward that he's been assigned, and finds out that it is the African-American or quote-unquote colored ward, right? So even in that story, this idea of having your racial status required, right, to be interpreted according to the rules of the region and the place that you find yourself in Apart from how you think of yourself, obviously, he thinks of himself as Asian, as Filipino. And then all of these agents in the course of the day interpret, well, who are you most like, mm-hmm. right? And they, their determinations were different, you know, according to who made them. Mm-hmm. And I find that to be a very um, puzzling, right, story. But it tells us a lot about how people perceive race right? How they interpret it. It's not something that's a given. It's not something that is just a simple matter of biology. It's not something that is about only your identification. Hey, I'm Filipino, right? It was about how these agents of white supremacy had interpreted him and where he belonged. And I find that to be really an an interesting story. Yeah, especially in our day or our time right now where it's all about sharing your unique voice and being this unique producer and then to have your identity kind of placed upon you by so many different people throughout the day. That must be so confusing and just, yeah, I can't even imagine. Yeah, and and you know that people all all the time in terms of being a person of color in the United States, you are forced to do code switching, you know, what's called code switching all the time, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, to you're almost this valet type of character where you know the ability to read the racial codes and to act accordingly, right? Mm -hmm. And you do so according to your own safety. You do so according to the norms that are established, right, for your group. Um, And so I I think that's something that a lot of people do without conscious thought. But, of course, one of the, the, the beauties of the literature by people of color in the United States is that they make those processes conscious. They put them out there for people to read and see and, and, and to be able to say, that, hey, that happened to me also. Um, I had to do that, you know. And, and I think that's just such an interesting process, especially for Asian Americans, because I do think for Latinx groups, Asian Americans, uh, American Indians, there's still so much of like, well, are you projected upon as a fantasy group, right? Mm-hmm. Do people have preconceptions about who you're supposed to be because visually you appear to be one of these groups? But if it's not fitting in the black-white binary, you know, how does that become legible, right, to people? And I still think that that's an ongoing question, mm-hmm. you know, for for the question of race in the United States. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you say um, you said the term fantasy group, and so your research focus has actually shifted to yet another interstice, um, that of race, pleasure, and visual <laughs> culture. So can you explain <gasps> what exists at that junction for you, and then explain uh, maybe what is racial fantasy? Yeah, so when I first started working on the topic of Asian Americans and the pleasures of racial fantasy, um, what 
I was drawing on is so much of the interests of your generation, you know, of students, that, uh, you know, I was so long, so many years, I was teaching deep into this very, you know, you know, not pretty history of racial oppression in the Deep South. And so, like, hmm, I thought, well, how would I switch if I'm looking at all these students that I have, both white and Asian American, who are interested in things like anime and manga and K-pop and you know, like these things that are so and, and you know uh, Pokemon Go, like things that are so fun, right? Why do they associate Asia with all these like delightful, you know, mm-hmm. activities? So many people in Wisconsin, being like kind of Asiaophiles or Japanophiles, especially. Um, in terms of their consumption of popular culture, or uh, you know, and now with you know K drama, K pop, K beauty being on the forefront of American consciousness as well, like all these things that are about the consumption of popular culture. So I thought a little bit about that, and I was thinking about the idea of what is the projection? What is the projection of Asia, right? That they're getting in these consumer goods, and why does it? Why does it? constructed as delightful, you know, especially because the whole history of, of Asians in the United States is, you know, a very, you know, negative, fearful, you know, type of history. The idea of Asians being part of the yellow peril and being, you know, in competition. Um, and you probably know this in, too, in terms of restaurants and, and being unsanitary, you know, like mm-hmm. all these negative stereotypes. And yet, here's K-drama, here's K-pop, here's all these, you know, like quote-unquote fun thing but I thought about looking more into the idea of fantasy which is really about well who are we projecting what are we projecting Asia to be right at the turn of the century at the at the millennial moment right and how are we projecting it as a site that is and also in keeping with the way it was projected in the 19th century something that is very appealing, aesthetic, fun, you know, likable. And so I kind of began investigating sites of popular culture where Asians were a source of delight hmm. um, and or where they were used, right, um, as a source of um, fantasy without actually Asian people. And so one of the things that the new work is about is about how Asians are portrayed as for example, pandas in children's literature. Mm-hmm. You know, so instead of Asian Americans, you get a lot of, you know, panda bears. You got animals who are dressed as Asian, you know, figures as a way to sell the idea of multiculturalism. And so this idea of the fantasy Asian, not a real person, but an animal dressed up, right, as an animal from these Asian regions. Mm-hmm. So that was one avenue of the idea of, of pleasure, you know, how we sell it to children. Um, another uh, area that I was working on is uh, Asian chachis or kwai or cute things. And I don't know if you are familiar with some of these little forms that come out of, of um, especially Japanese cute culture, but Harajuku girls perfume bottles. And I kept thinking about, well, how is it okay mm-hmm. to have a bottle in the figure of a cute Asian girl if the whole history of 19th century figures, racialized figures like mammy cookie jars, 
you know, or lawn jockeys uh, racialized as African-American are now prohibited or taboo. Mm -hmm. How is it that you can have these same kind of now 21st century figures, you know, like coin banks, purses, egg timers, household chachis that are created as Asian people? And so I was thinking a little bit about that. It's like, how is it that these figures now are circumventing that taboo that, you know, has not been the case or, or is very, very hard one to say that it's okay to display a mammy cookie jar, right? Mm-hmm. Because we recognize that as racially denigrating to create a person of color in the form of an object. Mm-hmm. And yet... You can walk into a store and buy, you know, an egg timer with slanty eyes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was thinking, like, what's that about? What is the fantasy that is the pleasurable fantasy associated with racial caricature that somehow still applies to Asians in the United States? Mm-hmm. And so I was writing a little bit about that in the new work. Yeah, it's kind of a bummer that we're running out of time, but um, my I can totally hear my mom's answer to all these things, which is just that, like, American people just want to experience Asian culture, and it's totally fine because these things are cute, and, like, maybe they just don't understand. And so how, how do you explain this um, going forward? And, yeah, how would you prescribe to either partake in this or completely avoid it? Well, okay, so that's what's so interesting, and, I, and this is why... I think the study of race in the United States is so complex. It's not simply, this is bad, this is good, right? It's not simply, this is wrong and this is right. There is a degree of nuance, especially in terms of Asian American identity and how Asian Americans are understood in the United States. So I just to tell that story, like the way uh, I was talking about these tchotchkes, these like little figurines and things with those slanty eyes and, you know, that are sold now, you can you can get them on the Internet, you know, uh, today. Uh, I had a colleague who I was talking about these things. She said, oh, you know, I have a ton of those, you know, they're so cute. I think that they're so cute. You know, and so, you know, like, yeah, we're driving the car and she's like, and suddenly she just bursts out. Those things are whack. You know? <laughs> she's like, well, I think about it. I have tons of things. Oh, man, those things, they denigrate ages. And so it, it was just so funny because you could see her mulling it over in her mind. Like, I have those things. They're so cute. They're just like kawaii. You know, I collect them and it's like, mm, no. I see how they're denigrating. Mm. And I think that that there's, in the space of that time, when I raise that question, it's not so that I would say, no, you must see these things as racist. These are characters, they're awful. Actually, I want to propose a, you know, a more complex question. It's like, well, how do you decide, right? What are the determinants? What are the communities? What's the audience? What's your perspective? What's the history that makes you come to that ethical judgment that mm-hmm. this is a racist representation or no, this is a cute, adorable representation. Like, how do we define that? And to me, that's what's so interesting about Asian American studies today is that you can begin to pose those questions. Mm-hmm. That is a perfect way to end our conversation. Thank you so much for today, Leslie. Oh, thank you for having me, Coral.
Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.